time that you've given me. And I'm starting to feel upset. And you really don't care, do you? We, we care a lot. <laughs> We're in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, beginning in verse 26. Now Paul here began to give these Jews a severe warning in verse 25. And verse 26 to the end of the chapter will deal with that warning about forsaking the assembly. <clears throat> you remember in verse 25, he said, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. He started out in verse 23 by admonishing them to hold fast the profession <coughs> of our faith without wavering. Hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering pretty easy to waver, isn't it? And the devil's out there waving at you to get you to waver. He wants your undivided attention. Either with toys or fun or, you know, things of the world. You've got to decide what's more important. And so here he, after he explained through a couple of chapters, uh, specifically the Christian privileges that we have, to come into the presence of God because of what Christ's done, the assurance and the conviction that we have in here that enables us to stand in a wicked world. And because of those privileges, uh, let us hold fast uh, what we profess to be Christians. And then in verse 25, he says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a matter of some is. Now that first assembly that's spoken of there is Sunday morning. The second assembly uh, that we warn our, uh, that they were to warn themselves of was A.D. 70. So he says, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And in that exhortation, you do so so much the more as you see the day approaching. And that day that he's speaking of there to the Hebrews is not Sunday morning. It is A.D. 70. We discussed that. I'm not going to go over it again. We give four popular uh, reasons that men have in regard to what day that is. We studied and talked about all four of them ways, if you remember. And the only one that it can be, according to the scriptures, it's A.D. 70, the warning that Jesus gave those Jews, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. All right, so, beginning in verse 26, we're seeing a continued warnings about what will happen to those who neglect such a sacrifice that Christ made for them. That's what you do when you, uh, when you, miss the worship service of the Lord on Sunday or the study of his word you are counting him as nothing that he don't really mean it He's, he takes second or third place in your life is what you're telling him alright let's start with verse 26 oh before we do 
I want you to notice the highlights now of verse 26 uh, to the end of the chapter, verse 39. There's four verses that I want to bring your attention to. Verse 26, if we sin willfully. Now we're going to find out that willful sin is neglecting the assembly. That's what he's talking about. And that is a willful sin, isn't it? Because you know it's Sunday. You know it's Monday morning when you're out there. i got to get up money and go make more money. <laughs> yeah. We know when Sunday's here too, don't we? And we neglect it many times because of some trivia. Because we don't count the sacrifice of Christ that important. And the declaration of it to the world. You're not the only little sweet pea in this world. There's billions of people out here that are lost and wandering around in sin. And you're, you stand as the body of Christ in a lost world. And you're going to neglect an opportunity like that? And that's what he's going to warn them. If we sin willfully, verse 26. Now look at verse 29. Because all this has to do with neglecting the assembly. You want a list of what, how bad it is to neglect the assembly? Well, I'm giving you the highlights right now. But it, all of us found in verse 26 and following. All right, verse 29. What do you do when you fail to assemble with the saints on Sunday? What do you do? Look at verse 26. You trod underfoot the Son of God. And you count the blood of the covenant wherewith you were sanctified. You count it as an unholy thing. And you do despite under the Spirit of God's grace. That's pretty serious, isn't it? And that's why later, in a couple of verses later, Paul will say it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And how much sore punishment do you suppose is waiting for you for neglecting such a sacrifice and the honor of that sacrifice? It's not, it's not up to you, well, I, I just don't feel like attending this morning. Well, maybe you are sick, and sick would definitely be a good excuse. But a lot of times we think we have the right to just decide and yet still go to heaven. No, 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 no. There has to be that commitment, that dedication, or it means nothing. It, that's the way it is in the world, isn't it? Isn't it? Amen. Where's the backbone of the church? They just think it's, well, I go or not. It doesn't really, hell, it don't matter. It does, and that's what we're going to see. Now let me call your, call your attention to verse 26 and verse 29, and you can see how the whole context of the end of this chapter ties in to the sin of willfully staying away from the worship service. That's not a privilege that you have. That's not an option that you're given. The awesomeness of the sacrifice that was made in our behalf and the nature of His holiness Demands my all. We sing about giving all. We just don't do it. We haven't figured out how to do it. Verse 35. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence. 
happens when you quit gathering with the saints? You begin to lose your confidence. You count the blood of the covenant as an unholy thing. You've done despite to the spirit of grace that taught you about the love of God and the separation uh, from death and Hades that that grace delivered you. All right, verse 38. But if any man draw back, what do you do when you uh, just neglect the assembly? You're drawing back. You're drawing away from salvation. You're drawing away from it. You're drawing back. We wouldn't tolerate that of a soldier on the battlefield, would we? When I went to Korea, I was I was in the 100th Cavalry Division. Excuse me, the 7th Cavalry Division. They lost their colors in one battle over there because the Gooks or the Chinese, the, the Northern Chinese, they fed their soldiers opium. They wrapped them with linen cloth. You could shoot them and shoot them and shoot them and they wouldn't go down because the linen held them together. They would die eventually. And they came across that line so heavy. Each platoon, each fire team has a machine gun at either end. They have AR weapons. They have uh, M1s. They've got rocket launchers. They've got a, a full array of what they need to defend their position. And when those Koreans come across that line, that, that fast and that furious, the military didn't have the firepower to put them down. And here the bodies were just stacking up and the enemy was running over the top of their dead comrades on opium, all drugged up. And the 1st Cav Division retreated. <laughs> and they lost their colors over that. They couldn't never come home to the United States until they earned those colors back. They finally did, but uh, they run in the face of the enemy. We wouldn't tolerate that on the battlefield. We don't tolerate that on the battlefield. We're having a problem now with desecrating that and leaving soldiers behind and leaving people behind over in Afghanistan. America don't believe that. They don't do that. And we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. And that's what the verse said. It's always been that way. There's always been those dear loved ones that just don't count it worth putting out. Well, and it don't feel good. I think I'll sit in. I, I've been wanting to watch this TV program. Oh, you sacrifice that for Christ? You put Christ aside and you say, you and your cross, you stay over there. I'll, I'll be back with you some other time when it's convenient. Right now, this is more important. That's what you're saying. I don't know how else to explain it. But we don't tolerate that on the battlefield. And the Lord's not going to tolerate it. Listen to him. Let's start our study in verse uh, 26. 
the writer tells these Hebrews, you got your Hebrew shoes on? All right, and you, you're back 2,000 years ago, just before AD 70? All right, and you've heard the Lord tell you the devastation is coming on the Jewish nation because of their blatant rebellion against God. They never listened to him. Stephen told them they didn't. He said, you do always resist the Spirit of God. Acts 7, verse 51. Always resist the Spirit of God. Yet they claim to be God's people. Do you suppose we can have that disease where we think we're God's people and yet resist the Spirit of God? That's what happens when you forsake the assembling. You don't have a clue what you're doing. Maybe you do and don't care, I don't know, but <clears throat> we got to see the problem. Now, their problem is particularly in view of forsaking the assembling and the opportunity to warn one another about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 that's coming on them. All right, if we deliberately keep on sinning, verse 26 says, after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left. That's scary. You think you're saved? Consider that. Sinning. That word is a present participle. And it relates to the sin of giving up meeting together, as verse 25 says, as the man, as some are in the habit of doing. What happens at school when little Johnny skips class? Does he have an influence on the other kids? Yes, he does, if they're not dedicated. Because they'll say, well, you're not going to class? No, I'm going fishing. Well, I'll go with you. I'll go with you. Pretty soon, that's what happens in a congregation. People that are undedicated and doesn't understand, they think it's their, it's their whether, whether they want to go or not, it's up to them. No, I didn't. Your salvation hangs in the balance. In two ways that I can think of. Neglecting such a sacrifice as counting it unworthy and also remaining ignorant about the Word of God. We come together to share with one another, to study with one another, <coughs> and to show our allegiance as one another to the Lord. All right, so the sin in this context here is the sin of forsaking Christ. That sin manifests itself in the cessation of attendance at the Lord's Day worship assembly. The knowledge of the truth that he speaks of there assures us that the parties under discussion had once been fully taught about Christ, had embraced him, and had enjoyed uh, uh, had enjoyed for uh, a period of time, the exercise of their privileges in Him. They'd enjoyed it. They had a clear conscience. They felt good about themselves because they were saved. 
And they were on their way to heaven. They give up on it. For some trinket out here in the world. What attraction does the world have that would draw you away from worship on one day a week? That's all God asks. Assembling ourselves together on the first day of the week. Does God ask for it? Oh, you know, my daughter, when she turned 18, she wanted to go to work up here at a restaurant in town. The woman asked her if she would be interested. She asked me. And I said, well, daughter, don't you know how this is going to end? I said, she'll want you to work Sunday and Wednesday night. And that's Bible study and worship. And she said, oh, I've already discussed that with her. And she said she'd give me Sunday and Wednesday night off. You really believe that? So I said, well, all right. I knew it wouldn't work, but as a dad, there's some lessons that our children have to learn firsthand because they just don't know how to listen. So I said, okay. Sure enough, it wasn't a couple of weeks until she came to her and told her, I need you to work Sunday. And, she, and Cheryl said, well, now we had an agreement. And she said, well, that ain't going to stand up because you see some of the other girls feel left left out because they don't have that privilege that you have. You see how the devil works on us? And so uh, she wanted to know if she could work Sunday. I said, no, that's the end of that job. That's the end of it right there. I said, here this woman gets six days of the God's grace to make her living. And she wants the seventh day. She wants the Lord's day. Do you know that down in the Bible Belt years ago, there used to be what they called a, was it a blue day? Or what was it? It was a blue day law, or whatever it was. It was a day when, uh, by law, all stores were closed. You couldn't buy lunch. They were closed. Why were they closed? Because in the Bible Belt, it was a day of honoring God, it was his day. Nowadays, every day is man's day to make money. And so I told Cheryl, I said, that woman is a selfish woman. She not only wants six days of the Lord, she wants that he gives her. She wants his day too. So you see how easy it is to justify and fall away from assembling on the first day of the week? You and I have got to reach that decision. We've got to decide, is it important or isn't it? If it's not important to hell, get out there and enjoy this world. But if it is, then you need to show the stick to of a soldier on the front line. And don't abandon it. Don't, don't run. So if, uh, if, if they then throw that overboard... Uh, and go back to the Hebrew system, and that's what he's trying to warn them not to do. The writer tells them that they are not going back to a sacrificial system that had any value, because it don't. It brought us to Christ, as Galatians 3 says. The law brought us to Christ, and after that we have no more need of a schoolmaster. It didn't have any value 
because it didn't take away sin. It pointed to the one who would take away sin. All right. Uh, in Christ, they had a standing sacrifice. Now, I want you to focus on that word that I use, standing. It's a sacrifice that stands. We're going to talk about that a little. Hebrews 10, verse 18, triumphantly announced that where remission is, remission of sins, there Christ, a Christian, will never need another sacrifice to remove his sins because the sacrifice of Christ also takes uh, uh, care even uh, of his next sin. So what about the power of that sacrifice that Christ made? It's a one-time sacrifice. It's a standing sacrifice. It never sits down where it has to get up again. It has to be offered again. It's a one-time sacrifice. The sin that I will commit tomorrow, if I live that long, and the next day, and the next week, and the next year, is already paid for. you got to get a hold of that. Even down to the last sin that he will ever com uh, ever committed on the face of the earth. The point is that in Christ, they have a standing sacrifice. I would suggest you write that in your notes and highlight it somehow. <coughs> standing sacrifice. Never to be offered again. It's already offered. And so the Christian has a uh, remaining sacrifice, a standing, a valid, God-accepted, God-acknowledged, God-pleasing sacrifice. That's what we have. But leaving that one and going back to the now-defunct Hebrew system, now that system is defunct, is to leave the only sacrifice that atones for sin. And that's what he's trying to get across to these Jews. Now, the deliberate sin that he mentions here then does not relate to just any sin that a person may voluntarily commit. That's not the sin he's talking about. This is a deliberate sin of neglect. Counting the blood of the covenant is meaningless. Nobody. If that... Uh, that were true, then any sin a Christian commits, knowing beforehand that it is a sin, would place him in a condition without possible pardon. So it's not talking about any sin, it's talking about this sin here that's under discussion of a, a neglecting the assembling of ourselves together. That would demand that the Christian live sinless from the time of his baptism. So the writer's not speaking of just any sin, this one is a sin of apostasy from Christ, as the next few verses will confirm. So the context tells you exactly what he's talking about. This willful sinning is in regard to the neglecting, the assembling of ourselves together. Verse 27. If we neglect it, 
There's only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. How can you claim to be a friend of God if you forsake the assemblies? I get the idea you can't. And you're going you're gonna to be the recipient of God's wrath. No sacrifice remains. That's the idea. But this verse says there is something that does remain. And here is what remains. A fearful expectation of judgment. You know good and well what's coming to you if you just neglect the cross. We don't come here for one another. You know, this is not some kind of a Cheyenne social club. You, you may not like me, and I can't help that. That's your choice. But I don't come up here because we're all friends. I come up here because of that table right there and my honor to the Lord, not because you're here or not here. So you see the difference? And so you can hurt my feelings. You can show me your disdain for me and the way I live or whatever, the way I dress or what I do. I, I don't know. But it ain't going to stop me from worshiping the Lord. I hope we get that lesson. Because people think, like I've told you before, this, this true story. A friend of mine went to this elderly lady's house who hadn't been to church for quite a few months. Hadn't been to the assembly. They had tea together. And he asked her why she didn't come. He loved her. He wanted to know. He wanted to help her if there was some problem. And she went into a great uh, dialogue on all her enemies. Well, this guy didn't talk to me last time I was at church. And this this person said a snide remark toward me. And this, that, and the other. And all the time, with tears in his eyes, that preacher, friend of mine, kept telling her, Christ didn't do that to you. Why do you take it out on him? Why do you neglect the assembly of yourselves together? Because somebody said something about, against you? Isn't that pathetic? And that's the way we are. We look for excuses, don't we? Why? I said something. I ain't never going back there again. <laughs> well, that's pretty stupid, isn't it? In any facet of our life. So, judgment will come to that individual that abandons the Christ and stands before God without sacrifice to uh, to atone for his sins. There is a fierceness of raging fire that will consume the adversary. The Greek literally expresses the concept that the fire is product of God's zeal and fervor. God's very zealous and very fervent about destroying anyone who acknowledges the sacrifice of his son and it walks on it. Because he's going to talk about walking on it here in a little bit. Treading underfoot the Son of God. That's what you do when you forsake the assembly. 
when a Christian leaves Christ, he becomes enemy. I can't pronounce that word. But what it means, you become like an enemy, a hostile, unfriendly. Enmity. That's what the word means. Enmity. To the cause of Christ. And is an adversary to the Christian system. <coughs> Having left Judaism to become Christian, and then to abandon Christianity, as some of them did and might do, and return to Judaism is tenement to declaring Christianity to be an enemy force. That's what you're doing. You're counting it as an enemy force. It stands in my way. It's hindering me from enjoying uh, my pleasures on Sunday. You count it as an enemy. Such practices <coughs> become hostile to Christianity. But the writer's point is that God then becomes hostile to him. You become hostile, first of all, and you'll defend it. If somebody stops by with a smile and says, Brother, we missed you Sunday. Is there a problem that maybe I can help you with? You're about to get my business. Better get out of here. And we get hostile. Well, let's see how God gets hostile over that kind of an attitude. The fearful expectation of judgment. Says the, pros the, pros says the prospect of greater punishment awaits the apostate from Christ who has once known the truth but has now rejected it. It says it is a fearful, it is fearful, and a man should shudder at the prospect. It's also expected, which means that it is sure and certain. It's not something that's a happenstance. It's definitely sure and certain. You show God that that sacrifice doesn't mean anything to you, that it takes second place in your life. Now that would scare the person who knows what this text is saying. Because you've just got God's undivided attention in a way of his hostility toward you. Now there's a sermon that I'm working on. I haven't got it finished yet, but let me pre-charge you with it. Jesus told a parable about God and his trees. And in this parable, you and you and you and you and me are trees of God's planting. He's the one to give us life in this world, in this soil called world. We're his trees. And Jesus said, after a period of time, like Paul told the Corinthians, for a reason of time you ought to be teachers. You need somebody to go back and teach you again what be the first principles of the doctrine of Christ. Alright, so like an orchard man, you plant these little trees, you give them time to grow. They don't have fruit for maybe five years or better. But you expect fruit in their maturity. And you're doing everything as the God of this vineyard to help them mature, aren't you? You're fertilizing them, you're doing all you can. And when they don't have any fruit, what's the, what does the Lord of that vineyard say? Pull those trees out and burn them. Have you, do you look around and see 
the trees that's been pulled out of the vineyard of God's planting here in Benton City. This is where you live, isn't it? Have you watched? Have you looked? I've seen a lot of men who's had opportunity for God's grace, knowed about it and turned their back on it. Repeatedly, 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 every week. They're not here anymore. They died that quick. Regardless of how they die, whether it's slow or quick, doesn't matter. The point is that Jesus told his parable and it wasn't no joke. You've got to see yourself as a tree planted by God in this world, the soil of this world. And he gives you his grace while he waits for you to grow up and learn a few things. And he's dying to teach you. He wants you to walk with him. But what happens when you bow up at him and refuse and neglect the assembly and the study of the word? What happens? Oh, there ain't no big game. And we go on with our nonsense. But it ain't nonsensical to God. Because he's going to tell us it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Because our God's a consuming fire. And he burns those trees. You think Jesus was just telling a story, a, a bedtime story? No, he was talking about real life that is you and I know it and are living it. And I've seen a lot of men around Benton City that I've known. And I know that they just repeatedly refused to acknowledge the sacrifice and even talked against it. And they're not with us anymore. And most of them were young men. God had enough of them. He's the one that decided that their maturity point had already been reached a long time ago. They weren't just little children, you know. And those trees didn't bring any fruit. Why does a man plant trees? Why did God plant you here? He had a definite purpose for you, 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 you. Now, just go ahead and neglect that and see about the fearful thing of falling into the hands of God. Living life is serious, and we know that in many ways, don't we? You don't overcharge or overspend. It gets serious, doesn't it, when you're messing somebody else's money. It gets serious when you mess with the sacrifice that God made at Calvary for you and me. Now you take that for what it's worth. So it's sure and certain it cannot be avoided. And it will be accompanied with raging fire, the, the, the Greek says, of divine wrath. Possibly for the writer, such judgment awaits those who leave Christ and revert to Judaism and will be destroyed in the raging fires of the destruction of Jerusalem. But the final import of this verse involves the eternal damnation of this man's soul in the raging fire of hell. If one begins to habitually uh, abuse himself or absent himself from Christian assemblies and to constantly uh, frequent services of the Jewish synagogue, it will not be long before he has completely abandoned Christ and all that he represents to God and to man. 
Now the Hebrew writer is firmly convinced that if an individual leaves Christ, then eternal judgment lays upon his head, for he has now become an enemy of God. You know there's a lot of people that are enemies of God and don't believe it, don't know it. Why? Jews were enemy of God. Did you know you're not finding more religious people under the Jewish system? Jesus spoke of them. He said, you honor me with your lips, but your heart's far from me. See, their worship was teeth forward. Oh, how I love Jesus. Teeth forward. Their emphasis is on how does it sound to the human ear. So let's get a piano in there. Let's do a few other things to adorn this singing for you and me, not for God. But who we're singing for? Who we're singing to? Who we're singing about? It isn't. If you want music, well, there's lots of music out here. Go buy you some tapes and listen to them. Enjoy them. But when it comes to worship of God, here to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, admonishing one another and teaching one another in those psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Teaching and singing those songs with grace in your heart to the Lord. Gratitude for what He's done for you. Now the Hebrew writer here is firmly convinced that if an individual leaves Christ, then eternal judgment lays upon his head, for he has now become an enemy of God. One, uh, one again, it might well be to clarify some confusion that surrounds deliberate sins. He's talking about deliberate sins. If you deliberately... Uh, Forsake the assembly. So let's look at that word deliberate. All the sins that we commit that are, uh, are aware of are deliberate. Sin is a choice for man. It is, isn't it? You make that choice every day, many times, many ways. And since he chooses sin, that creates his moral uh, accountability. It would be impossible for a person to consistently but unwillingly sin. It is the union of the will with the unholy desire that makes sin to be sin anyway. Yet even if a person knows his actions would be sinful before he engages in it but proceeds in it, if his faith in Christ is still intact, he has a standing sacrifice that will cover his sin. He knew it was wrong, but he did it anyway. He is ashamed of it, but he still believes in Christ. He still trusts in Christ's sacrificial atonement, and he has standing forgiveness. His relationship with God is not destroyed because of sin. The Christian does not live under the menace of transgressions because he has a standing sacrifice. It's there tomorrow. It'll be there the next day and the next day and the next day for whatever sins we commit. Redemption is 
remission is, and therefore he stands with an enjoyment of that continual relationship with God because Jesus not only gave his life, he maintains his life. So redemption is not a, a thing that you can lose. It is. It's a standing relationship every day and every way. And redemption or remission is. By analogy, Christians are plunged into Jesus as a life support system. And if we unplug from him, then there's a, no other life support system. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. They would then be abandoned to the direct consequences of their sin. And so he's talking about willfully sinning, deliberately forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. That's pretty important, isn't it? Is that important? <laughs> well, all my life in a church, I've noticed many people it's not important to. Why, I can go or not, it doesn't matter. Jesus still loves me. Uh, God is just wanting to favor me, you know, and he'll, he'll tolerate whatever I give him. <laughs> Verse 25, 28. Anyone who rejects the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Oh, he's getting down to the nature of God's wrath against the one who forsakes the assembly. What happens when a man, what happened in the Old Testament when a man deliberately rejected the law of Moses? The penalty was severe and imminent. Even under the law, there was no sacrificial provision for such high-handed sins. The writer <clears throat> used the severity of a lesser law to confirm more direct consequences for violating rejection of the higher law of Christ. And so if you reject the law of Moses and you receive the punishment, how much more shall you receive who has turned your back on Christ? Now that's a little bit greater in the eyes of God, isn't it? That's what he's saying. Hebrews 2, 1 through 3. We're studying Hebrews on uh, uh, Sunday morning. And we've already covered this ground, haven't we? But in view of Hebrews 1, the writer presents Christ as being the creator of the universe and the judge of the world and the savior of the world. What did he say in chapter 2? Therefore. Therefore is based upon wherefore that went before. What went before? Jesus is judge. He's creator. He's savior. And in view of that, Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we've heard. Lest at any time we drift away from them, like a ship that's anchored to the harbor, uh, to the landing. <coughs> Lest at any time we drift away. For if the word spoken, and here's why. Here's why we need to open our ears. If the word spoken by angels in the Old Testament was steadfast, unmovable, and every transgression, not just some, every transgression. 
received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord, and afterwards was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, the apostles. Verse 4, God also bearing them witness. And so it's a very severe thing, isn't it? And chapter 12, verse 25, they present two other warnings based on the comparison of the lesser law of Moses and the greater law of Christ. And the statement, the question's still there, how shall we escape God's judgment? Chapter 2, verse 3, they did not escape, did they? That ignored the admonition of angels. They didn't. When they refused, uh, when they refused God back then, uh, chapter 12, verse 25, both stand as warnings for the Christian to consider if he is contemplating his return to Judaism. God imposed on the people of Israel the obligation of taking him who rejects his law given by Moses out of the gates of the city and stoning him because he had abandoned the law of God and had considered it as an unimportant to him. Now what happened? They were stoned. You ever seen somebody stoned? I never have. I've heard about it. Can you imagine being taken outside the city and lined up there and every member of that city had to pick up a stone and cast it at that person until they killed him? Are you going to be gracious and just throw it at his feet? No, because there's others who take it seriously. You're going to try to help that guy get a die, aren't you? When you see the blood, when you see the eye knocked out, when you see the body being de well, I'm just trying to show you what it means to be stoned. I don't think there's an, uh, uh, an awful way of dying. Can you? And that's the warning. Does God take these things serious? Yeah, he's the one that commanded the stoning in the Old Testament to those who refused. So he was belligerent and rebellious in his rejection of the law. God did not want that kind of individual to remain in the camp of Israel, contaminating the thoughts of others. There's the, there's the problem, is the influence. There's the influence. You and I know what it means to be influenced by somebody else. We've all been carried away sometimes with different things of the influence of somebody. God said, don't let the influence even be there. Take them outside the city and stone them to death. So, doesn't that give more significance to this statement that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God? He's a very loving God. He's proved that in everything, in the creation, in everything. Uh, but, still in all, so thus a parallel is established between the law of Moses and the law of Christ. What will happen to an individual who rejects the law of Christ? That is the question. We know what happened to the man who rejected the law of Moses 
He died without mercy at the mouth of two or three witnesses. Well, our time's up. We're going to have to stop there. We'll begin with verse 29 next week. But I think it's important that we delve into these statements that's made here. Otherwise, why do we even study them? So it's going to take us a little bit sometimes, like it did this morning. But if we don't consider them, well, why even be here? If, if, they just, if we just gather to holler hallelujah and jump up and down and hop over a few pews, get our exercise for the day, and then go home. Thank you. This is the 29th. Yep, yep. I don't know what I'm not going to do. Hey, hey, hey. I'll wait to see if I'm hopping off the pew thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to see you jump over the pew. If anybody can, it'll be one. I'm going to see you jump over the pew